I'm Mark O'Connell, and you're listening to Far-Fetched, a podcast about my largely unpaid but mostly enjoyable career as a writer. In today's episode, I have some good news and some bad news. I'll start with the good news. The good news is that for, I think, maybe the first time on doing this podcast, I'm able to talk about UFO research and Star Trek, the two big things that I wanted this podcast to be about. They're finally overlapping in a story today. The bad news is that this is happening because someone passed away recently who was instrumental in this uh, connection between UFOs and Star Trek. So just a few days after I recorded the last episode of Farfetched, I heard the news that Douglas Trumbull had passed away. I'm guessing that not many people will recognize that name. So here, here goes. I'm going to tell you who Douglas Trumbull was and why he was important to me. In fact, he was one of my, one of my idols. So Doug Trumbull passed away in Connecticut a couple of weeks ago. He had uh, cancer, a brain tumor, and he'd suffered a severe stroke. So it doesn't sound like a really... A really pretty way to go, I'm sad to say. I'm just sad in general that he passed away. He was just a really a super nice guy. And I'd like to tell you the story now of how I met him. Well, first of all, I'll tell you why he's important. He was a special effects genius in the movie industry. In his early 20s, he was tapped to do special effects for Stanley Kubrick's science fiction masterpiece 2001, A Space Odyssey. Doug invented the technology that created the amazing light show at the climax of, uh, of the movie. And if you haven't seen it, you really should. It's, the, the movie calls for a real commitment of time and energy, but it's well worth it for the visuals. So he got to start doing the special effects for 2001, A Space Odyssey, and from there his career just skyrocketed. He did special effects for all sorts of really notable movies, The Andromeda Strain, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Blade Runner. He directed a couple movies of his own, Silent Running and Brainstorm. He just had a really amazing career, and he he just created ways of doing effects that nobody had ever thought of before, nobody had ever heard of before. He he truly was a genius, and an artist as well. There's a lot of beauty in his work. If you can just just sort of forget you're watching a movie and forget about the storyline and just appreciate the visual splendor of his work, it's, it's pretty amazing. Doug Trumbull was also, later in his career, instrumental in the development of the motion simulation ride at theme parks all over the world. If you've ever been to Universal Studios or one of the Disney parks or or some of the hotels in Vegas, you've probably been on a motion simulation ride. It's where you enter basically a theater and a movie is projected on a huge screen in front of you and it takes you on some sort of adventure and there are lots of hydraulics underneath your seat <laughs> that make the make the seating area where where the spectators are sitting they make you uh, tilt and dive and jostle and bump and all sorts of things that take you from not not just a viewer of the experience but an actual participant in the experience Doug had a lot to do with developing that technology and I'm pretty sure he made quite a fortune from it so that's, that's his real rough uh, background. He's always been keenly interested in improving the movie-going experience, in making movie images sharper, clearer, packed with more visual information, and, and more beautiful to the eye. How I got lucky enough to meet Doug Trumbull is kind of a weird story. 
about 10 years ago or so when I was researching my book, The Close Encounters Man, which is about a UFO researcher named J. Allen Hynek. I was working as a volunteer certified field investigator for the Mutual UFO Network, otherwise known as MUFON. So I'm working for MUFON. I was living in Wisconsin at the time. And uh, shortly after I had signed on as a certified field investigator, I was very quickly promoted to state coordinator and then assistant state director. Well, there were only a handful of investigators in Wisconsin to begin with. So being put in charge of, of what was essentially a skeleton crew wasn't really that big a deal, but hey, it was a great title. I was assistant state director for Wisconsin. Basically being a certified field investigator for MUFON, well, it's a real trip. If you have a, if you have a little bit of spare time and you're interested in the topic, definitely check it out. What you do is you send away for this field in 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 what you do is you send away for this guide for field investigators and you read the guide and you study it and then you take a test and then you pay them like $60 and if you pass the test boom guess what you are automatically a certified field investigator and you will start investigating UFO events so that's what happened to me So I'll talk more about my MUFON experiences in a, a later podcast, but for now the point is I had the title of Assistant State Director, which came in handy one day when I received an email from HQ saying, hey, we have a special opportunity that we're only making available to State Directors and Assistant State Directors. Special Effects man Doug Trumbull is inviting us to his home in Connecticut, actually his farm in Connecticut, to see the debut of a new UFO searching technology, UFO hunting technology. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to find the right word because it was it's kind of something brand new that there really isn't a word for. At any rate, we were invited out to Connecticut for a weekend to see this new technology in motion. I was just stunned. Doug Trumbull, I've been, a, I've been a fan of this guy ever since I first saw 2001 A Space Odyssey and started reading about how he developed these effects, some of which I, st I still can't figure out how he did them. So out of the blue, I get this invitation to spend a weekend in Connecticut at Doug Trumbull's farm previewing some new movie technology and UFO hunting technology. How could I not go to that? I just went straight to my wife and I was like, honey, I'm booking tickets for Connecticut. Here's what's going on. And she was wholeheartedly behind it, of course, as she always is. And so when the chosen weekend came, I hopped on a plane. I flew from Wisconsin out to Connecticut. And Doug had messaged me and said, look, you can stay at our place since you've come from so far. Uh, feel free to stay at our place. Uh, so don't worry about booking a hotel. And by the way, when you get into town, meet us at this restaurant. So I get off the flight and I drive outside of town, meet him at this restaurant. And I find myself sitting at a table with Doug Trumbull and his wife and a friend of theirs. And they, have, they are just finishing up their dinner. And we're having some nice dinner table chat, uh, maybe a little awkward because nobody really knew who I was or why I was there. But I do remember at one point during the dinner, Doug got up and left the table for one reason or another. And as soon as Doug left, his wife leaned over to me and said, so have you been abducted? 
And I, I just started laughing because I knew exactly what she was doing. She wanted to know if I was one of the weirdos, in her opinion. So I laughed and I said, no, I have, I have not been abducted. I said, I'm just a, a lifelong fan of your husband's work and I couldn't pass up the opportunity to come and meet him and, and see what he's working on, see what he's cooking up in his laboratory. So that seemed to satisfy her. So we went, uh, I followed them outside of town to their farm in the Berkshires and uh, Doug, directed me to, uh, Doug directed me away from the main house to a, a secondary building. Uh, that turned out to be kind of a part studio and part dormitory. And he explained that he built this so that when he's got people working at the farm on a, on a big project, they can just, they can just uh, stay in the bunkhouse, basically. So he said, you know, pick any room, whatever you're comfortable with. He said, there, there's food in the fridge, help yourself to whatever you see. You know, just make yourself comfortable and, and we'll talk tomorrow uh, when all the other people show up for the demonstration. So... So I had this, you know, comfy little kind of college dorm room, and I slept well, and the next morning I had some breakfast and went outside. And the first thing I see when I go outside in daylight is a big green army Humvee. You know, you know what I'm talking about, the big gigantic army vehicle. So that's just parked outside the buildings. So there's the bunkhouse and studio building that I'm in, and right across the driveway from that is another studio. And both of those studio buildings are a mile or two through the woods from the main house and Doug's actual special effects workshop. So, uh, but the meeting for the day for the MUFON people was at the, the uh, studio that was right across from where I was staying. So all the people show up and I'm kind of noticing that these are all... Um, MUFON people. They are UFO enthusiasts, and they came here to find out how Doug Trumbull is planning on capturing amazing images of UFOs, and, and so that we can all learn more about what they are. So everyone gathers together. We go into this studio, and it, I'm telling you, it was just a, it was a filmmaker's wonderland. Green screens everywhere. I mean, entire walls of the, of the studio were green screened, and there was this globe, uh, a sphere, 30 feet across, and there were uh, there were stepped seating inside the sphere, and it turned out that the inside of the sphere, the entire inside of the sphere, was a uh, movie screen. So it turned out that what, what Doug had invited us there to see was a really face fascinating project, and it started with the Hummer out in the backyard. Doug had developed a, a system that he called UFOTOG, U-F-O-T-O-G, one word, all caps. Look it up online. You can find lots of YouTube videos that'll show you what UFOTOG is. It's, the term is a mixture of the term UFO and photography. And the idea is that this Hummer outside was loaded with optical equipment, radar, sonar, any kind of imaging or sensing technology that you could imagine was all packed into the back of this Humvee. And what, the, what you would do with this truck is you would drive it to some high point where you thought it was likely to see a UFO. That's, of course, a little dubious, but that was the idea. You drive it to some place where you think you're going to see a UFO, you park, and you flip a switch, and the entire back roof of the Humvee opens up as a, in a clamshell. And this gigantic assembly of imaging technologies rises up out of the back of the Humvee 
and starts aiming into the sky and looking for anomalous objects. It's really quite amazing. We never got to see that actually happen because I'm not even sure if the Utah instruments were in the back of the Humvee. It was very hard to tell. So we didn't get to actually see that happen, but that was the idea. That was the heart of UFOTOG, that Doug wanted to build thousands of these devices, thousands of these vehicles, and have them scattered all over the globe, waiting and watching for UFOs. Now, how was he going to present this? Well, he, he also had another technology that he was including in his presentation, and that was called Magi, and that was a new method of projecting movies that would use, uh, again, the maximum amount of visual information packed into, packed into a film frame. And again, you can find lots of videos about this on, on YouTube. Magi, M-A-G-I. So what Doug had done was, in his home studio, he had produced a 10-minute demo reel for a movie, a, movie a, a fiction, a science fiction movie that he intended to produce and direct about UFOTOG. So the movie was about this young guy, a young astronomer who's desperate to capture images of a UFO, and he's using UFOTOG. And at the climax of this 10-minute movie, this guy actually makes contact with aliens in spaceships. And we were able to watch this sitting inside this 30-foot dome where your entire field of vision is filled up by the action on the screen. And when these UFOs start appearing and zooming over this kid's UFOTOG unit, it is just an amazing, amazing show because, of course, it's 3D, it's 4K. It's like every modern technology went into the creation of these images. So we're sitting in, in, this, in this globe just being with our senses just being inundated by just the incredible imagery that we're seeing. And it lasts about 10 minutes, and everybody was just kind of hushed when it was over with. And Doug opened it up for questions. And as I said, most of the people there, most of the visitors, most of the guests there were actual, you know, MUFON people. So they just wanted to ask Doug questions about, well, have you seen a UFO? Have you ever captured an image of a UFO? Blah, blah, blah. They wanted to know UFO stuff. I was apparently the only person there who was interested in Doug's cinematic work at least as much as I was interested in his his UFO stuff. And so because of that, I'm happy to say Doug, uh, I guess I could say Doug gave me a little bit of a prefer- preferential treatment in the Q&A segment because I think I was, I, was, I was absolutely trying and I think succeeding in asking him much more interesting questions about what I could tell was the really important stuff here to him. And I think, I think he appreciated having somebody addressing, addressing the, the presentation on that level, because uh, not many of us were. So at any rate, he, he thought the reception was so good that he decided he would show it again. So we got to see this 10-minute short a second time, and it was just as mind-blowing. And the one thing I remember t- asking about... Um, in the Q&A was, uh, I was really impressed in the short film by how the UFOs seemed to change from solid to liquid to gaseous in the blink of an eye. And I, I just remember Doug getting super excited and was like, yes, yes, that is exactly the effect we were going for. So I thought I thought that was kind of cool uh, that I picked up on something that was really important to him and it and it truly was one of the most amazing things about this 
this movie. These UFOs just changed in the blink of an eye. And seriously, one time, at one moment, they looked solid. A second later, they'd look gaseous. A second later, they'd look liquid. And then they'd go right back to solid again as they're zooming through the sky. It was quite amazing. So, so at this point, it was clear what Doug was doing. He, was, he had written a screenplay for a movie about a UFO researcher who invents this technology he calls UFOTOG, and he sets out to capture the best image ever of a UFO. That was the overarching goal. Make this movie. Write and produce and direct this feature-length movie. At the same time, the feature-length movie would not only promote the concept of UFOTOG to the audience, but it would also it would also serve as a practical demonstration of his Magi projection system. So it's this multi-layered thing. Doug created a 10-minute short film to promote a feature film telling the same story and promoting the type of technology that the film was shot on. There's so many layers to this, it kind of makes my head hurt when I try to describe it. But that's what he was going for. Unfortunately, his idea for the Magi system never really took off because by the time he was ready to present it to, the, to Hollywood, there were so many other technologies in development and available that he, he was kind of fighting a losing battle. I remember him complaining about how uh, Peter Jackson was experimenting with, like, Twice, twice the image rate on his on his uh, film of Lord of the Rings. I'm, I may be getting some of the details wrong there, but I know that there was Peter Jackson was doing something really crazy with film projection on his movies, and that was kind of making it hard for anyone else to get any any attention uh, paid to what they were working on, including Doug. So that was a little disappointing to him. So the presentation of UFOTOG is over. My flight isn't leaving until the next day. So Doug says, hey, when everybody leaves, you know, come on back over to the studio and we'll talk. You know, I'll tell you more about UFOTOG and we could talk about UFOs. And at this point, I really wanted to interview him for my book because here is another connection. Doug had directed the special effects for the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. My book is called The Close Encounters Man because it's about the work of Dr. J. Allen Hynek. Hynek's work was the inspiration for Spielberg's movie, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and Doug had done the special effects for that movie, and he had met Dr. Hynek on set, because Hynek spent a couple of days on the soundstage in Alabama and actually had a little cameo appearance filmed that is still in the movie. And so there was, this, there was just this weird, weird connection, and I really wanted to talk to Doug about his work on Close Encounters of the Third Kind and what it was like to work with Dr. Hynek. So I finally got a chance to talk to him. He, we, he showed me around a little more around his studio, but then we drove across the compound to his actual private studio, his private workshop, where he does all the stuff that he just wants to do. And it was just this amazing workshop filled with, you know, lathes and 3D printers and just every kind of technology you could imagine for creating models and creating illusions. It was just this really wonderland kind of place. So Doug very proudly shows me around. And then there's this nice little there's this nice little alcove on one wall where there are just a couple of leather couches and you just sit there and relax and brainstorm and 
So we ended up sitting there and I said, and I said, so, you know, we talked a little bit more about his work. And I said, so what was it like uh, working with Dr. Hynek? I said, I had no idea, Doug, that you were this interested in the UFO phenomenon. I said, this is, this has really come as a surprise to me. And I said, you knowing this about you now, I'm just really curious to know what the experience was like meeting Dr. Hynek and talking about UFOs with, with Dr. Hynek. And Doug shook his head and he said, you know, Mark, I'm, I really hate to admit it, but he said, I never was a- able to take the time to sit down and talk to Dr. Hynek. He said, I knew who he was. I knew about his work. And I was really curious to talk to him. But he said, it's just life on a movie set, you know, getting a chance to actually just sit down and have a conversation with someone. It just wasn't going to happen. So he felt really bad about the fact that he had spent a couple of days working with the great man, Dr. Hynek, but hadn't had a chance to pick his brain about anything. I said, well, you know, let's, I would love it if you would be willing to do a, you know, a formal interview. I didn't have my recorder or notepad with me at the time. So I said, you know, maybe I could call you up in a week or two. And he was agreeable to that. Unfortunately, while we're in the middle of this conversation, Doug is, his face is getting redder and redder, and, and I can tell there are beads of sweat forming on his forehead. And he just kind of looked at me and he just said, gee, Mark, I, I, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going on. But he said, all, all of a sudden, I don't feel very good. And I could tell something was wrong with this guy. He was, he was super flushed and getting sweatier and sweatier by the moment. And I said, you know, you should probably just go home. I said, I'll, I'll go back to the I'll go back to the dorm. I'll be fine. I'm, I'm flying home tomorrow. I said, I'll check in with you tomorrow before I leave. So he went back to the house, and I went back to the barracks, and I found some things to do to pass the time that afternoon, spent another night, and then in the morning, called over to the house and checked in with Doug, and he just said, I'm really sorry, Mark. I, I just feel miserable. I don't think I want to have any visitors today. So unfortunately... The visit with Doug didn't pan out the, quite the way I had hoped. But I was able to interview him on the phone a couple of weeks later, and he gave me some great quotes that I was able to use in my book. So all in all, it ended up pretty nicely. Now, I mentioned at the top of the show that there was an intersection here between UFOs and Star Trek. Well, that intersection is Doug Trumbull also just happened to do the special effects for Star Trek, the motion picture. The very first Star Trek movie ever that came out in 1979. And I was really interested in talking to him about that, too. So I learned a little bit about his work on Star Trek at the time. It was a crazy story. You know, I've talked about this in another episode of the podcast, so I won't belabor it. But in the 1970s, uh, when it was apparent that Star Trek had a huge, huge fan base and would would pay good money to see any kind of new Star Trek <laughs> possible. Uh, Paramount and Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry started thinking, well, what can we do? How, how can we bring Star Trek back to this audience? And throughout the 1970s, they just kept swinging back and forth. Should we do a feature film? Should we do another TV series? Unfortunately, because the process went that way, the decision, the final decision to make a feature film was made so hurriedly and so last minute that basically Gene Roddenberry was stuck using all the stuff that had been developed for the proposed TV series and converting that into a movie. And the, the result of that is one story that Doug told, which is that he, he 
The special effects company that Paramount hired, that Gene Roddenberry hired um, for Star Trek The Motion Picture, seemed to be very competent, seemed to be very creative, seemed to be just ideal for the movie. But as they were completing uh, photography on the film and starting to turn their attention towards post-production, it comes out the special effects house had not completed a single special effects shot for the movie. Not a one. So it was panic time. The movie was on direct, uh, you know, the movie's on schedule. It's got to be released on a certain date at a certain time. And they've just realized that the backbone of the movie, the special effects, just aren't happening. So they called Doug in at the last minute on an emergency and said, can you basically said, can you please save our movie? So he goes to the special effects shop to see what they've done. And the first thing he saw just horrified him. Their miniature of the Starship Enterprise was about six feet long. And Doug said, that's okay for a TV show, but for a feature film with a huge screen? He's like, you, you need to have a model of the Enterprise that it's at least three times that big. So he had his work cut out for him. I can't even imagine how stressful that must have been. So Doug provided all the special effects for Star Trek The Motion Picture. And it's a good thing he did because that is, that is one of the few bright spots <laughs> in, in this movie. Unfortunately, aside from the soundtrack written by Jerry Goldsmith, which is fantastic, aside from that, Doug Trumbull's special effects are really the best thing in Star Trek The Motion Picture. It's just, like I said, the, the, movie, the project went back and forth between being a, a TV series and a movie, and so everything was disorganized. Nothing was, nothing was being done right. Now, now, as a lifelong science fiction geek, I can still clearly recall the excitement surrounding Star Trek The Motion Picture in the, in the months before it hit the theaters. I subscribed to every science fiction fanzine that there was, and I just couldn't get enough of the latest Star Trek news. You know, everybody wanted to know, well, will the Enterprise look different? Will, will they wear different uniforms? Will the communicators be different? Uh, will there be new cast members? That's all anybody wanted to know. Well, as it turned out, the new Enterprise for the movie looked essentially like the old one, except that the warp engine nacelles at the rear strangely looked like 1961 Cadillac tail fins. That was a little bizarre. The Crew's uniforms were, I guess, an improvement for the women because they no longer had to wear miniskirts. They were wearing tunics and slacks, as were the men, but everything was gray. It didn't matter what your rank was. You couldn't tell someone's, you couldn't tell from looking at someone whether they were with engineering or the science department or, or command crew because everything was gray and really kind of dull. And they did add new cast members. That was a remnant of the TV series idea. A new uh, executive officer for Captain Kirk. That character's name was Will Decker. Uh, and if you think about Will Decker, it sounds an awful lot like Will Riker, uh, Captain Picard's number one executive officer in Star Trek The Next Generation. Uh, Gene Roddenberry never minded reusing characters and names and ideas from one show to another. So there was the new character, Will Decker. And if I remember correctly, this is ultra Star Trek trivia. If I remember directly, Will Decker was meant to be the son of Commodore Decker, who was a character in the original series episode, 
the Doomsday Machine, one of the best of the original series episodes. So there's this weird kind of lineage, DNA lineage running from Star Trek, the original series through Star Trek, the motion picture, and then into Star Trek, the next generation, all dealing with guys who may, may or may not be related to each other, but they have very similar names. And as far as Doug's work goes, there are two high points. First of all, there's the there's the scene where we get our first look at the refurbished Starship Enterprise early in the movie. And the Enterprise is in dry dock, and Scotty and Kirk are on a shuttlecraft approaching the ship. And the scene goes on for like an hour, it feels like, because they're just reveling in the, oh my God, it's the Enterprise, the Enterprise is back, and it looks like it has tail fins. And isn't it cool and beautiful? And it is a great segment. It's so great that another movie spoofed it once. There's a very funny movie called Galaxy Quest in which they spoof the dry dock sequence, and it's really, really funny. So that's one of Doug's standout pieces. The other standout piece is the Enterprise's voyage through the alien structure known as V'ger. It goes on forever again. And in this case, it goes on forever, not because people are reveling in the visual splendor of what they're seeing, but because they need filler for this movie because the story is so non-existent. The story for Star Trek The Motion Picture was adapted from what was going to be the pilot episode of Star Trek II, the new TV series. And let me tell you, things didn't go real well. So I I don't want this to be a total downer, so I'll just sort of briefly go over the things that don't work with Star Trek, the motion picture. First of all is the fact that Captain Kirk has virtually nothing to do in this entire movie. In fact, far from doing things, the few times he attempts to do things, his number one officer countermands his orders and humiliates Kirk in front of the bridge crew, the logic of the script is that, well, all the controls are different on the Enterprise now and Kirk doesn't know how to run the ship anymore. But why would you put your heroic Captain Kirk in that position in the first place? It makes him look weak. It makes him look completely ineffective. And it's just ruined, as far as I'm concerned, it ruins the whole movie. I don't know how they got William Shatner to agree to do this part because literally everything is taken from him. So there's that. There's the fact that the story breaks one of the primary rules, one of the primary directives of writing for Star Trek, and that is, when stories feature an exciting guest character, the tale must focus on how the outside characters and events affect our people. Our characters must still drive the show and ultimately learn from the experience. Well, in Star Trek, the motion picture, they do the exact opposite of that. The new first officer, Will Decker, has all the action. The storyline primarily revolves around him and his relationship with this bald alien named Ilea, who is also new to the bridge crew. So basically, you've got a huge, big-budget, big-screen Star Trek movie that basically is about a a love story between two characters we've never met before, we've never heard of before, we don't know shit about them. And we're supposed to care enough about their romance to carry us through the movie. And I'm sorry, it just doesn't work. But maybe the worst thing of all about Star Trek, the motion picture, is the fact that they rehashed one of the original series episodes. In fact, it could be argued, and it has been argued, that they used elements of several 
episodes from Star Trek, the original series. But the one I'm thinking of is, and it, again, it's one of the greatest episodes from the first, first series, is something called Changeling, which involves the Enterprise coming across a deep space probe that has one mission, and that is to eliminate impurities presented by biological entities. All biological entities must be destroyed. And unfortunately, this little contraption is flying back towards Earth. And it turns out that it was an Earth probe to begin with. And somewhere in deep space, it collided with an alien probe, rebuilt itself, and reprogrammed itself to start taking out biological entities. Well, you can guess which biological entities are most, at, most threatened by this robot called Nomad. It's a great story. It's really a great story, and it's a great episode. But it's the exact same story that they used in Star Trek, the motion picture. And that's pretty inexcusable in my book. So there you have it. A short critique of Star Trek, the motion picture, but a glowing, I hope, description of the work of Doug Trumbull, somebody I wish everybody knew more about. It's not a bad idea to watch Star Trek, the motion picture. If you're not expecting much, if you just want to watch it for the special effects and the music, then I say go for it. Otherwise, it doesn't have much to recommend it. But at any rate, I'm glad I got a chance to talk about Doug Trumbull. Again, I was really sorry to see him pass away for a minute or two while we were sitting in his workshop before he got deathly sick. We actually were talking kind of jokingly about writing a movie script together. It was just it was just a joke and it didn't last long, but I sure did love the idea. That would have been a dream job for me working with the man Doug Trumbull on a collaborative science fiction movie. Man, that would have been the best. Well thanks for listening to my ramblings. If you like what you hear, please post a review on the uh, on the whatever podcasting platform you use. I appreciate good reviews. Tell your friends, and be sure to tune in next time. Until the next episode, this is Mark O'Connell, and you've been listening to Far Fetched.